I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, friends, and welcome to this week's episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and this is the podcast where I pick a famous headline from history, and then after reminding you why that headline and date was significant, I look through moral newspapers to tell you what else was going on around the world. I look for little-known stories that you've probably never heard before, or didn't realize they were happening at the same time as some of history's biggest moments. Today's famous date and headline represent an extremely important event, and not just for the United States, like most of our podcast episodes, but for the entire world. It was a turning point. Our headline comes from the Parsons Daily Sun out of Parsons, Kansas. The date is April 6, 1917, and the headline says, President Wilson declares war with German government. Yes, It's the day the United States officially entered the Great War, a.k.a. World War I. Entering the war had been a long time coming, and I'm sure citizens of the United States knew it would most likely happen eventually. On April 2nd, President Wilson went before a joint session of Congress to plead the case for war. On April 4th, it passed the Senate. And on April 6th, it passed the House. There were multiple reasons the United States decided to finally enter the war, but President Woodrow Wilson said that the biggest reasons were that, number one, Germany had pledged to stop submarine warfare in the North Atlantic and Mediterranean and to stop sinking merchant ships in those areas, but they didn't follow through with their promise. And number two, Germany was trying to get Mexico to form an alliance with them against the United States, and we didn't want that to happen. President Woodrow Wilson gave a long proclamation on that day, and it was printed in newspapers everywhere. The papers were filled with tales of war and of troops being mobilized. One newspaper that I glanced at had about 10 war-related articles, and that was just on the front page of the newspaper. There were more inside. Men and boys of all ages and from all areas of the country felt the call of patriotism and enlisted. Some were poor young farm boys and some were aged men who had served in the Civil War. One newspaper, and unfortunately I can't tell you which one because I thought I made a note of it, but I didn't, so you'll just have to believe me. Anyway, that one newspaper said that in one town, a 96-year-old man had enlisted, and another man in his 80s had enlisted. Now that's dedication. World War I had already been going on in Europe for three years before the United States entered. And the United States was very much aware of what they were getting themselves into. As I've spent many hours reading through old newspapers, I can tell you that what was happening overseas between 1914 and 1917 was reported in newspapers all the time. But, like I always say, this podcast isn't about the most famous stories. So, let's open up some more newspapers and see what else was going on around the world the day the United States entered the Great War. For my first additional history story of the day, I'm taking a headline from the Buffalo Evening News out of Buffalo, New York. This headline says, 
mystery of missing jitney driver deepens. Right from the very start, when I saw this headline, I became curious. The headline used two of my favorite words to see in headlines, mystery and missing. And not only that, the headline included another word that I didn't know the meaning of. Do you know what a jitney is? Yes? No? Maybe? Personally, I'd never heard the word before, and I had to look it up. According to Merriam-Webster, a jitney is basically an unlicensed taxi service. It typically followed a regular route and had regular users. In our story, the man who created the mystery by disappearing was 40-year-old William E. Pelton, and his family was very worried about his well-being. He had a wife, three young sons, and a young daughter. The oldest child was just 12 years old. A couple of nights before our article was printed, William Pelton left his home at number 20 Edgar Road in Tonawanda. Now, Tonawanda is a town in upstate New York. It's considered part of the Buffalo-Niagara Falls metropolitan area, and it's right by the Erie Canal. Today, the town has a population of around 15,000 people, but back in 1917, it only had around 10,000 people. So not a huge difference, but a little bit smaller. Anyway, on the day in question, Jitney driver William Pelton told his wife that he was going to drive a group of men to a theater in Buffalo. He handed her $5 and then walked out the door wearing his big, heavy coat at around 7 o'clock in the evening. Considering the nature of Mr. Pelton's employment, I can imagine that his wife didn't give much thought to where her husband was headed. He probably left to drive people around at all hours and times and places. But as the hours grew later and later, and William didn't return home, his wife grew more and more worried. Around midnight, she was sure something wasn't right, but she waited until the morning to notify the authorities. Mrs. Pelton told Constable Martini exactly where she thought her husband was headed the night before, and that he never returned, and that kind of behavior just wasn't like him. William's neighbors agreed and said that he was a homebody who would much rather spend time at home with his family than out partying with friends. They couldn't think of a single friend or acquaintance of his that would be the type he'd suddenly leave with. Surely there must have been some accident or outside force that kept William Pelton from returning home the night before. But as the day wore on, and the town was searched, and people were questioned, weird things started popping up in the investigation. Things that didn't match William's man-of-habit personality. First of all, it came out that William never drove a group of men to the theater that night, and nobody could be found that knew anything about a trip to the theater that had suddenly been canceled. Instead, the authorities found a man named Albert Kessler. Albert said he knew exactly where William Pelton had been the night before. The two men had gone bowling together in a local saloon. Mr. Kessler's story was easily proven, as there were multiple witnesses that saw William there. He'd stayed until around 9.30 p.m. and then left. Everyone thought he was headed home, but, as we know, he never made it. When asked what William had been wearing at the bowling alley, witnesses said he was dressed very well, much better than he normally would be to go bowling. His wife had only seen him leave in his big, heavy coat and hat, and didn't know what he was wearing underneath it at all. When she heard what the witnesses had to say, she sent her daughter to look through his clothing, and sure enough, his brand new blue suit, a new blue hat, and a new spring overcoat were all missing. 
For whatever reason, Mr. Pelton had put on his best new clothing and then covered it with his heavy coat. I think Mrs. Pelton was a bit surprised by the news at first, but then she told authorities that he must have worn his best clothing because he was going to the theater. Except he didn't go to the theater. It didn't take long for the mystery of William Pelton's disappearance to deepen, as our headline suggests. Later that day, the authorities found his car. It was parked inside an old shack near the Grand Island Ferry. Both the front door and the rear door of the car were open. William's eyeglasses were found on the floor of the car, smashed to pieces. A few feet away from the car, William's hat was found. The constable was pretty alarmed at this point that William might have met with foul play. He was told that William took great pride in keeping and maintaining his vehicle so that it was always in good condition. People couldn't imagine that he'd leave the doors open and then just walk away from it. The constable continued to search around the ferry and under a nearby bridge. That's when he discovered an abandoned coat. William's wife identified the coat as her husband's. Now, sadly, when I first started reading articles about this story, my mind jumped right to suicide. William Pelton wore his best clothing, abandoned his car, and then his coat was found near a body of water. It all seemed to add up. His family didn't believe there was any way he'd do something like that, though. His sister told the newspaper, quote, My brother never stayed away from home until a late hour, and there was nothing in his manner that would cause him to stay away or end his life. We cannot understand why he would abandon his car, because he was very careful of it and always kept it in his own garage. After examining the scene, the constable agreed that it looked as if William Pelton had met with some sort of foul play. Footprints had been made leading to the bridge and around where William's coat was found. When another abandoned car was found nearby, the authorities quickly did a search for the owner, and it turned out that the Ford had been stolen. A couple of private detectives happened to be in the area the night before and saw the men who abandoned the second car. They claimed they were just going for gas, but never came back. They were described as young, small men, and the footprints near William's coat had been made by very large men. The second car was believed to be nothing more than a strange coincidence. And, to top it all off, William was known to carry a lot of money with him, and when his coat was found, the pocket where he usually kept his money had been turned inside out, and it was empty. Then, it came out that the year before, William Pelton had had some sort of trouble with three foreigners. No details as to what that trouble might have been were released to the newspaper. But at the time of the incident, one of the men had told Pelton that he was going to get him. With that news, and the evidence presented, the authorities began grappling the water near the bridge in search of a body. They also sent word out to all the banks that if anyone tried to cash a check or claim money using William Pelton's name, that the bank should notify the sheriff, who was the main man in charge at that point, and immediately detain the person. I kept looking through later newspapers in hopes of finding a resolution to the story, and the next update I found came on April 18th, almost two weeks later. According to this article, Sheriff Stangle got lucky, and while looking for Pelton, he stumbled across a man named Emil Totterman. Emil had been convicted and sentenced to life in Sing Sing Prison for killing a girl and then chopping up her body 13 years before. But 
Totterman had escaped Sing Sing. People wondered if maybe the escaped murderer had something to do with William Pelton's disappearance. Now, as with many of my stories, this one has a twist. Are you ready for this? In the June 4, 1917 edition of the Buffalo Evening News, a full two months after William Pelton disappeared and was presumed to be murdered, his wife suddenly started to tell a different story, and she went to the district attorney asking for help to prove she was right. She claimed that she had lied to authorities when William disappeared and that the couple did not have the happy marriage everyone thought they did. She claimed she only said those things because she thought her husband had been murdered and didn't want people to remember him poorly. But she'd recently found out that ten days after her husband disappeared, a lady friend of his also went missing. Mrs. Pelton believed her husband was with the woman out west. She said she didn't need him in her life and could take on boarders to support herself, but she did want him to support their three children. And that is all I could find about William Pelton. Did he commit suicide and try to make it look like something else? Was he murdered by an escaped convict? Or did he fake his own death and escape with a lover to the West? Who knows? For my second additional history story of the day, I'm taking a headline from The Western Advocate out of Mankato, Kansas, from April 6, 1917. This headline says, Bandit's Treasure Sought by Nephew. In this case, the nephew being referred to in the headline is a man named Scout Younger. Now, while his name might not sound familiar to you, his uncle's gang definitely will. You see, his uncle was Cole Younger, the infamous outlaw who was part of the James Younger gang, as in Jesse James's gang. The group had worked together while robbing trains and banks and wreaking havoc all over. At one point, four of the Younger brothers were involved. Cole, Jim, John, and Bob. The brothers had met Jesse James and his brother Frank James during the Civil War. The men had been Confederate bushwhackers in the state of Missouri. Instead of fighting with the normal Confederate army, they were involved in guerrilla warfare. When the war was over, the group eventually got together again, and many of their raids and robberies were done as revenge on people they believed wronged them, or others they served with during the Civil War. Anyway, eventually a bank robbery in Minnesota went wrong, and Jesse and Frank James got away while the injured younger brothers ended up in prison. It marked the end of their gang. I won't tell you everything that happened over the next few decades, but know that eventually one of the younger brothers died of tuberculosis in prison in Minnesota, one committed suicide after being paroled and told that he couldn't leave the state, and then Cole was pardoned in 1903, and he eventually joined a Wild West show with Frank James. Those two men died a year apart, both at age 72, in 1915 and 1916. According to the article, Scout Younger, Cole's nephew, was trying to find $63,000 that the gang had buried somewhere near Tulsa 40 years earlier when the gang was active. Scout Younger claimed that his uncle Cole had a dying wish. On his deathbed, he made Scout promise that he wouldn't stop looking until he found the missing money. Supposedly, Frank James made similar statements before he died. He, too, said the money was near Tulsa. 
From the description given to Scout by his uncle, he believed the buried treasure would be somewhere in the Lost City Canyon. At the time it was buried, Cole Younger and other members of the gang were running from a posse chasing them after they robbed a stagecoach. The heavy bags of gold and silver were weighing them down, so they jumped off their horses, dug a shallow hole, and dropped the heavy bags into it. Cole Younger planned to return for the money later, but he didn't make it. The problem was that a new road had been made in the area, and it didn't follow the old cattle trail that Frank James and Cole Younger had followed. Remember, Cole Younger had spent 25 years in prison in Minnesota before he could come back and look for the cash, and the landscape changed a lot in the 25 years that he was gone. What had once been hunting grounds for Native Americans was now plowed land on fenced-in homesteads. When he got out, he wasn't sure where the money was buried. He thought it was somewhere near the banks of the Arkansas River, but in all the years away, it most likely sunk down in the soft sand, and it could be anywhere. The legend of the treasure has made the rounds in Oklahoma's history, and it pops up in newspaper articles now and then, but unless he kept his find a secret, Scout Younger never found the treasure buried by his famous relatives, and nobody else has found it either. Want to go treasure hunting? For my last additional history story of the day, I'm taking a headline from the April 6, 1917 edition of the Vermont Phoenix. There are actually several articles about the same subject in this newspaper, but the one that first caught my attention said, Failed to find dungeon. According to this and the other article, the Brattleboro Retreat in Vermont was currently being investigated for complaints made against it from patients and employees. First, I'll give you a little bit of background. The Brattleboro Retreat first opened in 1834, although it was originally called the Vermont Asylum for the Insane back then. The name was changed sometime in the late 1800s, so it wouldn't be confused with a state-run hospital of a similar name. By the time our newspaper articles were printed, the retreat had already been operating for more than 80 years. And it's still operating today. That means it's almost 200 years old. The Brattleboro Retreat was one of the first facilities meant to treat mental health in the United States. At one time, the retreat had as much as 2,500 acres, although it's smaller now, and most of the buildings on its campus are listed on the National Register of Historic Places. The retreat began as a place that was meant to treat people with mental disorders in a humane way. Asylums were notorious for poor treatment of their patients, and the Brattleboro Retreat wanted to change that. Even back when it opened, they thought of mental disorders as diseases, and not something that happened because of sins the person had committed or character flaws. Their treatments included getting fresh air, physical activity, educational enrichment, and therapeutic farm and kitchen work. They were the first to have a patient-run newspaper, a bowling alley, a movie theater, a swimming pool, a gymnasium, and many more things. So far, everything sounds great, right? Well, in 1917, accusations about the retreat started to come out from former patients and employers. They claimed that things weren't as rosy on the inside as the outside made it seem. One lady, Mrs. Hattie Guilford, had spent time at the retreat and had quite a few complaints. She said that she was put into a straitjacket and left like that for several days. 
While in the straitjacket, they'd put her food on a tin plate on the ground and make her eat from it. She also claimed that she was knocked down at least three times a week, and one time she was hit with a piece of iron or a lead pipe, and it left a scar on her head. Another time, she was thrown onto her bed by an attendant, and when her head hit the wall, she was left unconscious. The attendants left marks on her arms and chest, and one of the attendants broke her jaw. She had to spend several days in a dungeon underneath her room without any food or water. And, most shocking to me, she once saw a night watchman kill another patient down the hall. Hattie claimed that they made her take an oath saying she wouldn't tell anyone about the real conditions at the retreat. With all those accusations, an investigation was opened, and more people started to come forward to tell their tales. Miss Gertrude Graham said that she was at the retreat for seven weeks, and during that time she was forcibly fed, strapped to her bed so tight she spent the night in agony, she was choked, and she was thrown around by the attendants. Miss Graham claimed that the attendants stole her best clothing and took money and fruit that was sent for her. Walter Hamilton testified that conditions were unsanitary and mice and bedbugs were everywhere. He too was thrown around by the attendants. Charles E. Ray spent five years as a patient of the Brattleboro Retreat, and when he finally got out, he went back to work there for four more years. He testified that he had seen patients being abused without good reason. He said the food was awful and the conditions were unsanitary. Some of the other employees testified too. Mrs. E.C. Jones, who had worked at the retreat as an attendant, said the food was really bad. There was never fresh meat and everything was unappetizing. She also said that when inspections were about to happen, they were ordered to, quote, slick things up for the trustees. In other words, they hid the normal conditions. The sheriff who dropped patients off at the retreat was questioned, and he admitted that he'd never actually gone inside, so he didn't know what it was like. But he did see attendants throw a patient against the stone steps after he dropped them off one time. Still, other people testified that the food was fine, and they'd never seen anyone treated unfairly. And, when Mrs. Hattie Guilford was taken back to the retreat to show the investigators where the dungeon was, she couldn't find it. I will note here that others, including employees, that there was a secret padded dungeons room somewhere, but nobody seemed to know where it was. The investigators also determined that there was no way Mrs. Guilford could have seen another patient murdered in the place she claimed it happened because there was no place she could have viewed it from without being seen. It seemed that for every complaint a patient or employer put forward, the defense had something to prove that it wasn't true. Or couldn't have happened the way they claimed it did. In any case, it must not have affected the retreat too much. Or maybe they cleaned up their act, since they're still in operation more than a hundred years later. Today's advertisement comes from the Evening Sentinel out of Red Bluffs, California. This ad is quite big and was found on the front page of that day's newspaper. It starts with big, bold words saying, Awaken people, don't kick about the high cost of living. So, what is this advertisement for? It's an ad for milk from the Western Dairy, which was under new management. For just seven and a half cents per quart of milk, 
the dairy would deliver milk to your doorstep twice a day. The ad tells readers to, quote, talk it over with the family and then phone 379A or see the delivery man about the milk with the big cream. When I was a young child, we still had a milkman. I was too young to understand that the milk probably came on a set schedule, but I remember wanting to look in the milk box on the front porch all the time, just in case there happened to be milk in it. Friends, thanks for listening to this week's episode. I hope you learned something that you didn't know before, either about the U.S. entering World War I or about one of the additional history stories I shared. You can find all the sources I used by looking in the episode description. And if you'd like to reach me, you can message me in the Additional History Headlines You Probably Miss Facebook group or send an email to additionalhistory at gmail.com. Then, as always, you can tune in again next Monday for another all-new episode. I think this one will surprise you. It's an event that happened well before I was born, but I've still heard about it. Although in starting to research the event, I've already realized that what I thought happened wasn't the reality of the situation. You'll have to listen to have any clue as to what I'm talking about, though. So, talk to you later.